Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 290. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're honored to have with us the award-winning and internationally acclaimed author, Phil Schubert. (laughs) You've written many volumes called The Lamoille Stories, and I live in Lamoille County. You've also done a lot of other books. You've also a founder of many institutions. You've been on boards. You are truly are a Vermont institution that you've touched a lot of aspects of the arts and the science sciences in Vermont as well. I'm 78 years old. So it's, part of it's just longevity. But for the first time in my life, I'm not serving on any boards. I'm board free. Wow. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> I usually tell people when they move to Vermont, I said, give yourself two weeks. Someone's going to knock on your door and ask you to join oh, a board. So absolutely. Yep. <laughs> as of, as of recent, you, you do have a, a lot of books have come out over, over the years and you kind of started doing a lot of these publications. Usually um, it looks like since starting around like 2006 and seven, is that correct? Yeah. It's, um, I retired from business in 2008 and, um, I just was ready to move on and do something else Mm. and, um, really, really wanted to have more time. I was very interested in writing when I was in prep school and I was very lucky and got into a class by, that was run by a teacher, a writing class in my senior year. And he ended up being a teacher of some really famous American writers, James Agee and and a bunch of folks. And that got me very excited about it. And then um, I went away to college and I got a short story published in the Great Lakes Review, which again, whet my appetite. But when I was in business, I never really had time to write and so finally, I, uh, when I quit, I sat down and started writing short stories from mm. tales that I'd heard, you know, around the Uncle Mando's dinner table, um, <laughs> you know, and, um, and uh, published it and was very nervous, didn't much know what I was doing. And uh, I went over to a book launch at the library in Morrisville. And it was so crowded, they had to move it to the church mm. and went down to the church. And I was terrified because I wasn't sure that I had hit everybody's names enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I was afraid that people would recognize, you know, themselves or other people. And um, I was sitting there waiting for it to start. And this very large woman got up and I didn't recognize her. And she said, Billy Couture, I know every damn person in that book. And I was terrified. And it was my third grade teacher. I was absolutely terrified. Um, But it turned out okay, because whether it's flattering or not, um, people seem to be happy to be included if they recognize themselves, which a lot of people did. So would you consider these books, they almost 
geared a little bit towards memoir or geared towards nonfiction, but these are actually works of fiction, technically. They are works of fiction. I mean, in the Lamoille stories, they're stories that I heard or knew mm -hmm. about, you know, um, as a young person. Stories I'd hear around the dinner table. And um, they just really stuck with me. And, you know, the French-Canadian culture that I grew up in, these people were storytellers. I mean, when you sat around, you know, the dinner table on a Sunday afternoon, you weren't talking about the manure pile or the hay crop or whether your, you know, Ford 8N would start. They were telling stories. Right. And boy, they, they stayed with me. Why did you decide not to write any memoirs or any nonfiction? You seem to just always, as you said, geared towards mostly the fiction genre. Yeah. I mean, the closest I ever came to a memoir is a book I wrote called Photographic Memory, which right. is the worst book I wrote. Um, <laughs> there's some very interesting stuff in it, and it is as close as I would ever get to a memoir. Um, I'm thinking of pulling it and rewriting it. Um, but there's an awful lot of my own life in there, my life in Morrisville, my time in New York City, relatives. Um, the photographic memory part comes from the fact that Alfred Stieglitz was my great, great uncle and George O'Keefe was my great aunt. Mm -hmm. And the family really had a penchant um, in every generation for making movies, you know, home movies and photography. Right. I mean, just a staggering amount of photography in every generation. So talk to us about, you had some sequel books already of Lemoyle stories. Were the stories in Lemoyle stories, were they, were they the first ones uh, that kind of made the cut? Or did you already plan on having sequels to this because you had way too many tales and stories to fit into one book? It was what you just said. I mean, there were more stories than I could fit. And Lamoille Stories 1 is still my best-selling book. Hmm. You know, it just keeps selling and selling and selling. And Lamoille Stories 2 sells well, too. Um, but there were just more stories, you know. Um, so I just went ahead and did that. And the other collection of short stories, as you see, was Fat People. Right. And that was the hardest book I ever, I ever wrote. Mm -hmm. um, I used to weigh 485 pounds. Wow. And yeah, and I was just hugely obese and very, very addicted to refined carbohydrates. And, and I wanted, when I lost weight, I lost 240 pounds slowly over two years. I wanted to write a book about the experience of being fat. I didn't want to write a diet book. So this right. is short stories, um, most of which are based in some form of reality. And um, I, um, so I, I wrote them because I wanted people to have some sort of understanding and empathy for people who struggle with food, which right. I did all my life. And and I, I was trying to figure out what in God's name and can I use as a as a cover? And, you know, you can't go up and say to a large person, excuse me, can I take a picture of you and use you, right. use yeah. you on the cover of a book called Fat People? Right. Um, and Kate and I were in, we were on our way to Morocco 
and we stopped at the Prado in Spain and we wanted to see Las Meninas, the great paintings. And we, I wandered off into a gallery and I saw this image that is um, on the cover of Fat People. And it was an eight foot high painting, Spanish painting done in the late 19th century. And I looked at it and I sat down and I started crying. Mm. It was called La Monstrua Desnuda, the Naked mm. Monster. Mm. And I looked at this girl's face. This is a 12 year old girl. I looked wow. at her face and I just saw this total alienation. I mean, why am I trapped in this body? And it hit me so hard. I went up um, to the office at the Prado and I said, can I license that image for the cover of a book I have coming out? And they said, yeah, of course. And I paid them $85 and a high res file showed up at my designers. And it's problematic. <clears throat> I wouldn't I wouldn't ever change it because it's exactly what I wanted for that cover. Right. But it, it was hard for bookstores, obviously. You know, you don't normally have a book with a picture of a 12-year-old naked girl, right. even though it's not, there's nothing sexy about it. It, you know, it's, a, it's just hard. But, um, it, and that book has done really well. That book has sold, um, it's also become a staple in a couple of medical schools where they use, they have a course called Humanities in Medicine, where they're trying to get doctors to have empathy for their patients. And they do it by teaching literature. Right. Anyway, so that became a staple in a couple of those courses. I just, it's a book I needed to write. Did you write this and some of your other ones? Is this basically some level of therapy for you or is this some level of necessity to write these it's a great question and i think i think i don't know how to say it other than to say i needed to get stuff out of my head and right. on paper i needed to expunge a lot of the pain associated with being a fat person right. and to try to communicate not in a way that that gathers sympathy but in a way that gathers empathy. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was, the, that was the whole point of writing Fat People. And there was, when I, I went into treatment, um, not a fancy spa, this was a really dark place in, in Florida in an abandoned hospital. And um, um, an awful lot of the folks there were black. And I was, um, I showed up at 485 pounds and the first person I met the third day I was there was an 800 pound Catholic priest who oh, came okay. in on a gurney. And that's one of the short stories. It's called Father Bob. Wow. Um, and, and what about some of your other ones we've mentioned before about Lamoil, the Lamoil stories? Are are those based off of the fact that did you see a vacancy of knowledge in history that you felt it was your duty to write these down? No, not really. I, I didn't feel, I mean, there's been a lot of wonderful stuff written about Vermont. Annie Prue, 
um, who was a good friend when she lived in Burlington, Edward Arlington Robinson um, in, Ver no, I guess it's Ferrisburg, the, the Rokeby. Um, he wrote some wonderful Vermont short stories. So it's it's been, there was no purpose. I just wanted to get these stories out. And Lila and Theron is a novel that could have been in Lamoille's stories. Lila and Theron was a couple who lived right next to us. We lived on Washington Highway. The house that my my father and Oscar Churchill built is gone now. It's it's part of the Copley parking lot. Jeez. <laughs> but um, the uh, Volney and Gladys Farr lived in the farm just up the road, and that was where I had my first job at the age of twelve. Okay. And um, they were a really wonderful, and that's basically what Lila and Theron is based on. This uh, this was a finalist as well, right? The Independent Book Publishers Association Popular oh, yeah, Fiction yeah, finalist. Yes, but what I think was most interesting is that Simon and Schuster picked up the book on the basis of the manuscript, and it did not go through an agent. Wow, they loved it, and. Okay. They picked it up and it was designed by a guy in Paris um, who has done 2,800 covers and he read the book and loved it. And he sent me an email and he said, do you have an image in mind? And I sent him this image, um, Richard Brown, which was black and white and he colorized it oh, wow. and made that cover. Yeah. What's the synopsis? What's the story behind uh, Leela and Theron, as you mentioned? It's, it's funny, it doesn't have, you know, a, a, a real narrative arc. It's really their whole life together. Wow. They were okay. childless. And um, it goes right up to both of them dying, you know, and it goes very deep on Lamoille County and Wolcott and Elmore, logging, the logging industry, you know, and what farming was really like. And once again, Bill, this is a work of fiction, even though it sound, it almost feels as though it's a nonfiction setting. Right. But technically it is fiction right. because um, although it's based on them and there are elements of their life, it's also um, a lot of it is just made up in my head. Wow. You know, um, I would say they are the inspiration and there's some accuracy, but it's really a work of fiction. Fairly similar to when you did uh, your I Am Baby, which is says it's based, it's a work of fiction, but it's based off of a true story. Yeah. This is, I mean, if, if I could be remembered by any book, it would be this book. Um, I knew this woman really well. Mm. Um, she sang for 10 years with her partner. Um, Virginia, they sang together outside the awning at Bloomingdale's on, um, I think it was 79th and Lex, the big Bloomingdale's. Right. And they were tolerated under the awning, um, which amazed me. And they would sing six, eight hours a day in any weather, but they were allowed to sit under the awning at the entrance to and um, Baby is one of the most amazing women I ever, ever knew. 
I was so stunned first by their music that we brought them up and we did an album of them um, on Philo Records, which won a um, which won a, an award from the National Endowment on the Arts. Um, it never didn't sell very much because it was very arcane kind of white gospel music. Um, but I became very good friends with her. And um, when she d- died, I I was so, I just sat down and, and wrote the book. And when she was up recording, um, she was up for, she and her partner, Virginia Brown, were up for four days. I just left a recording machine on the whole time we were talking. And she told me a lot of her life story. And I wrote it into the book in honor of her. She was, um, when I was in New York, she said, do you want to come to my service? And she had the lowest form of preaching license one could get in New York City, which was called an exhorter. And exhorters were typically people who stood out on the street and screamed and yelled about being, you know, saving yourself. And so I took a cab out to Bed-Stuy and the cab driver said, excuse me, white people don't go to Bed-Stuy. And I said, mm-hmm. well, please take me out there. And he did and dumped me out. And Baby's church was in an abandoned basement in an abandoned building. And I went down there and there were six blind people sitting in folding chairs. And she asked me if I would bring in the donuts, which I did, which were crawling with, um, you know, bugs. Right. And she got up and delivered a sermon on gratitude. And this is a woman who had, from what I could see, nothing to be grateful for. She'd been molested as a young girl. Her baby had been taken away from her. And, um, and she talked about gratitude. And it just made me realize, you know, I I absolutely love that woman. Right. Would, Would this have been a book that you felt like it was really important to be memorialize her and actually writing her story yes. down. Yes. Yeah. I was afraid that other than the record, which is still available. And if you, if you go deeper into the website, you can actually listen to her music. And there's a whole bunch of photographs of her that um, I hired a world-class photographer who happened to be my cousin, um, who was the photographer at the New York world's fair to spend two days just photographing baby in Virginia. Mm. So it seems like a lot of your stories, a lot of your books seem to really kind of focus, focus on just like the, the perseverance of, of your major protagonists. Well, I think, I think that's true. I mean, I, um, there are people who have made me who I am. And it's sort of a way to pay homage to them. You know what I mean? Um, I, I don't know how else to say it. And it's it's interesting because I often get asked about how I write. And, you know, I, I know a lot of writers, obviously, and I read a lot of new manuscripts. And, um, you know, people say, well, do you make an outline or do you make a plot outline or do you make a summary? And... You know how sometimes you learn by just talking and listening to yourself? It's weird. And I realize what I do is I start out with a very clear character or characters in my mind. 
and I put them in a place and I start writing and then they sort of bring me along. It sounds bizarre, but I mean, it, it's the characters seem to somehow become friends and take a, on a life of their own. And sometimes I just will let them lead me somewhere. Does a fictionalized version of the, the, the real life people, do they act differently as you write them or they, they pretty much stick to how you envision them to be in real life? It's really a mixture of both Barney. Okay. It's, it's, you know, um, sometimes I impose on them mm. and sometimes I don't, you know, I mean, <laughs> it just depends. Um, and of course, you know, before I take the work out, you know, as a finished manuscript to critical readers and an editor and so on and so forth, I, I will probably rewrite anywhere from five to seven times. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And how, how does that process work? Do you, do you edit it as you write it or do you write the whole draft and go back? Yeah. And what I, what I do is, and I learned this early on, um, I can't write for more than an hour and a half, maybe two hours max a day. It's hard work. And so I'll write, you know, maybe three or four or five pages. And then I stop and grab a chainsaw and run into the woods or something, <laughs> you know, get away from a screen. And um, then when I come back to write, I pick up where I started writing the day before and read forward and wow. make extensive edits and then write another three or four or five pages. Um, and that way also I get continuity. If right. I picked up where I dropped off, you know, um, a parakeet might become a parrot in the fourth <laughs> chapter, you know. <laughs> so, um, and I'm a firm believer in editors. You know, I, I have no patience for writers who say, oh, it's an intensely personal, lonely experience. It's me expressing myself. <laughs> And writing to me is a collaborative experience. It has to be between you and a reader. And you you need collaborators to develop a good manuscript. You need a literary editor. You need critical readers. You need a copy editor. You need a good designer. You know, it's, it's not just me and my ego. Um, and so talk to us about your most recent book, The Correctional Facility. That just haunted me, Barney. I, mm. when I was, I went from Morrisville, Vermont, eighth grade to Phillips Exeter Academy. And I didn't even know what Exeter was. And frankly, I went there because my father had gone there. Right. And I got in, I was there four years. And the, my second year there, I read Dante's Inferno. And of course, mm. being raised a Catholic and totally imbued with guilt about everything, I was absolutely not only thunderstruck, but terrified by the book. Wow. Um, and I, I remember only being able to read it in small doses. So again, it, it was kind of like I needed the purgative of going back and revisiting it, you know, as a 70 year old instead of a 15 year old. I, I went back and read it really carefully. Then I decided 
that instead of it being hell, which, you know, I was raised with with Catholicism, you know, I don't believe there's a hell. And so I transposed it to a correctional facility and it becomes a tour, um, you know, of me going through a correctional facility with Walt Whitman, you know, and um, going through all the different sections and seeing all the different kinds of sin. It uses the same navigation as the Inferno, but it's modern crimes. It's like, you know, I mean, all kinds of crimes. Right. And, And the other interesting thing I explored is things that were a sin when I was a kid that are sins and have circles of hell in Dante's Inferno aren't sins anymore. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like right. being an atheist or committing suicide, you know, right. or, or having a divorce, mm. you know? Um, so that was intriguing to me. What was a sin in Dante's time that is no longer a sin? It's true. Nobody's going to jail for being an atheist. I would never say I was an atheist because to me, that's right. arrogant. That right. says, I don't, I know absolutely there's no God. Right. You know, I, I would say more that, um, you know, I'm agnostic. I don't, if there is a God, I don't know it or understand it. And so was this also kind of some, some level of therapy for you to write this book then as well? I think so. I mean, you know, I keep talking about expungement. You know, mm-hmm. expungement around my addiction to food, you know, my my fascinated fascination with the county I grew up in. And this was Catholicism. Right. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, you know, when I when I was 13, I knew the mass in French, Latin and English. I was an altar boy. You know, I was I was all there. Right. And when I went away. And my, when I was 17, I took a course over two years in which we read every single book of Russian literature that was available in translation. And I read Dostoevsky's The Legend of the Grand Inquisitor, which oh, is the story within the Brothers Karamazov. And I read that short, I read the whole book. But I mean, when I hit that short story inside, I turned away from the Catholic Church and I never went back. Okay. That turned me away totally from the Catholic mm. Church. And that was before, you know, all the scandals with pedophilia and everything else. So, which is really interesting for someone who has, has written so many books in such a short period of time. Frankly, I'm surprised, Bill, you don't have a COVID project, anything that you wrote. Well, there's a book that I'm writing now that I'm okay. I'm struggling with, not it's based on a real life experience that is so unique, mm. not to my family, but to another family that if I can't bury, if I can't preserve the plot and yet make it anonymous, I'm going to have to ask permission of the family to publish the book, even though I've fictionalized it, moved it to a different country. You know, it's, um, and it's interesting because the genesis is in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. I can't talk about it yet because I, I'm still in the midst. I've written about 10,000 uh, 10, words. 
And I try not to write anything that's over 40,000 words because attention span is shrinking. And I love, I frankly love the idea of a novella. I love short right. stories and novellas. And when I pick up a book that weighs more than I do, I'm like, eh, I'm not so sure. Because, <laughs> yeah, the correctional facility is a novella. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Right. And all your other ones are a collection of short. A lot of your stuff, you're right, is like a collection of short stories. Excellent. So, Bill, if people want to learn more about your work, where's the best place they could go to? Probably the best thing is on my website. The, the books are all there. The, the critical information is there. You know, where they can get the books is there. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of, of local bookstores. I know all the bookstores in Vermont. I work closely with them. Um, I, I ask people not to buy my book on Amazon, but you can't be a writer and not have your book. So all my books are on Amazon. And I'm not, you know, anti-Amazon, but I'm pro-independent community bookstore. Right. And, um, you know, so. Well, listen, Bill, you're going to have to come back on because as we were saying before we went live, is like there, there is so much stuff to talk to you about. And we didn't talk about some of your op-ed pieces. We didn't talk about your musical. There's so much stuff that we haven't even talked about, Bill. But that means you're going to have to come back on one of these days and we'll, well continue the I'm, conversation. I, I have enjoyed very much our conversation. And next time I'm in Morrisville visiting my sister or maybe what i'll do is call you and we'll go have a cup of coffee there you go absolutely that'd be fun yeah i'd like that So I'm also curious. So what was I going to hang on? Let me timestamp this. This is the best part about this, Bill. You know this as, a, as you know, radio. I mean, do, I use timestamps. So when I timestamp, when I edit this, it's so smooth after the words. It sounds like I'm just asking you one question after the other. <laughs> and they're like, wow, look at this. Barney's right on top of it. See? So that's how the magic of editing, right? So, oh, yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I do it when I'm writing. <laughs> right. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs>